This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's like everybody wants an answer like it's cheating or it's sex or it's, uh, you know, financial impropriety or it's dishonesty. I think if I had to answer it, it's disconnection. We connect abruptly when we fall in love sometimes. Feel connection fast. Like when someone says it was love at first sight, what they really mean is it was connection at first sight. Like I felt a connection to this person. But we don't disconnect all at once super fast. Like I I think we disconnect like we go bankrupt very slowly and then all at once. Like it's just like a little raindrop, 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 and then there was the flood. And no single raindrop is responsible for the flood, but the flood is nothing but raindrops. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is James Sexton. James is a divorce attorney who's been practicing family law for over 20 years, and his expert legal skills and confidence helped place him in the top 1% of family law attorneys in New York. His diverse clientele includes entertainment personalities, Fortune 500 CEOs, teachers, high-end financial professionals, law enforcement professionals, stay-at-home moms, and more. He's also the best-selling author of the book, If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late. Today on the show, we discuss why so many marriages are failing right now, the less obvious things that destroy relationships, how to minimize the impact of divorce on kids, how to make love and relationships last, things you can do to keep the spark alive and prevent your relationship from falling apart, why James thinks people cheat, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome James Sexton to the Adversity Advantage podcast. James, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Doug. You're quite welcome. And I would love to just jump right in. I would love to know, based on all of the clients that you've seen throughout the course of your career and in your work, like why do you think that so many marriages are failing today? Yeah, I mean, that's like the million dollar question, you know? And and I I, I try to base it on what I see sitting in front of me, you know, in, in my office, um, because everything else is sort of theoretical speculation, right? Like there's so many people that can say, well, I think it's this and I think it's that. I'm basing it really on the data, you know, the people sitting across from me in that chair, because, you know, by the time they're sitting in a divorce lawyer's office, like it's reached critical mass, you know, either they are ending it or their spouse has sent papers to them that they're ending it. And now they have to come in and and defend, but either way they've reached that sort of critical tipping point. And I think the answer is like everybody wants, I know what everybody wants. Like everybody wants an answer, like it's cheating or it's sex or it's, uh, you know, financial impropriety or it's dishonesty. I, I think if I had to answer it, it's disconnection, you know, disconnection. Like we, we, we connect very abruptly when we fall in love sometimes. Like we fall fast. We fall in love fast. We feel connection fast. Like when someone says it was love at first sight. 
what they really mean is it was connection at first sight. Like I felt a connection to this person, but we don't disconnect all at once super fast. Like I, I think we disconnect, like we go bankrupt very slowly. And then all at once, like, it's just like a little raindrop, raindrop, raindrop. And then there was the flood and no single raindrop is responsible for the flood, but the flood is nothing but raindrops. So you can't say like, well, it's, you know, it, it's the flood. Well, the flood's made of raindrops. So what were those raindrops? And a lot of times those in, in my observation are little disconnections that lead to a dysfunctional symbiosis of sorts, like a, a dysfunctional pattern that leads to like a marriage killer. And marriage killers are things like infidelity, are things like financial betrayal, significant substance use disorder, the kinds of things that, you know, like I know you have background in, in recovery and in, in those kinds of issues. And, you know, if someone said like, hey, why did you have substance use issues? It's like, you know, it'd be great if you could just say, uh, oh, my childhood or, oh, I had a parent who had addiction issues. But, but really it's like, well, it's my, my brain chemistry. It's the life circumstances I was in. It's the you know, mental health issues I deal with. It's, and it's all of those things and none of them individually. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, what we're really looking at in, in divorce is a situation where people who were at some point connected are now disconnected to the point where they want to fully sever the connection. And so I, I think it's disconnection. That's the short answer. And what do you do with that? That's another question. Because the question is, is once you're disconnected, can you reconnect? Or is it a matter of, of staying connected while you're connected? And that's a whole lot easier than when something's broken trying to reconnect. So I guess taking this a step further, you have an interesting perspective because in your line of work, you develop pretty deep relationships with your clients when their marriage is almost over or in fact over. And I would imagine given that you've said that you believe that the main culprit to marriages failing is lack of continued connection that I'm sure you've heard people say, I wish my husband would have done more of this. I wish my wife would have done more of that. What have you found to be the things that actually truly matter in marriages based on what your clients have told you after the fact? That's a great question, Doug. You know, it's funny because I think there's two answers to that question. One is what people will tell me is like what they think the problem is and then what it might actually be. Because I, I think a lot of times what we think the problem is and what the problem actually is, like they're two different things. Like there's, you know, I wish we were all so self-aware that we could say, you know, but, but I think there's a toddler in all of us, you know, that's like, I'm not tired. And it's like, I think you're tired. I'm not tired. I'm, I'm really upset. I'm not tired. I'm not tired. Uh, yeah, you're, you're yawning. I think you're tired, you know, and then you take the nap and you're like, man, I was so tired. Holy cow. That's really what it was, you know? And so I, I think, what people will tell you is they'll tell you it's sex, you know, and I'm not saying it's not like, I'm not saying, uh, you know, or it's, it's, um, you know, just stop noticing your spouse. You know, you stop complimenting your spouse. You stopped, uh, trying to close the deal with your spouse. You know, there's a period of time where like, we're trying to close the deal. You know, we meet this person, we want them to like us. We want to like them. We want to see the beauty and excitement in them. We want them to see the best of us. 
And then, you know, it's pretty easy to like stop telling your partner how beautiful or handsome they are. It's really easy to stop, you know, hearing the praise that they give to you, even if they give it to you often to just sort of, you know, well, I know what they think of me, but what does the world think of me? That's what really matters, you know? So I think for people, they would say it's things like that, right? But, but the question again is, what is it that makes us feel connected? And, and again, to keep bringing it back to connection, I, I think we'd be surprised. Like, I know I've always been surprised. When I listen to, uh, for example, a group of women, when I listen to a group of women talk about what they like about a man, heterosexual women talking about men that they're interested in or that they're dating, I'm always surprised like at what it is that they notice and what it is that they're interested in. Like I just assume because I'm a heterosexual man, so I don't look at men with that kind of desire. I like assume, oh, they want like, you know, eight pack abs on a guy and they want them to be like kind of like cool and tough, but not overly tough and still have an emotional side. Like I have a trope in my head of what a woman wants. And if you listen to a group of women, like speaking candidly to each other, like the stuff that they point out is like, oh my God, I love when they, oh, he did that. And it was so, oh my God, I love when they do that. You're like, holy, really? Like that, that's all it's like that. Like that's such a weird thing, you know? And I think it's true of all of us. Like if we think about what are the moments where we feel loved by our partner, whether it's a current partner or whether it's a past partner, like what, when did we feel good about it? And I think sometimes that that's something I've learned in my profession. Like when someone says to me, I want 50% of the custody of my kids. I want the time, I want 50, 50 time with my kids. That, that's not actually what they're trying to say. Like they think that's what they're trying to say. Like they think they, but no one actually thinks the kids that way. Like no one actually goes like, well, I've been with my kids 47% of the time. I need another 3%. Let's get your baseball glove. We got to do 3%. Like no one looks at it that way. What they're really saying is, hey, I don't want to be a second class parent. I don't want to have like a lesser role in my children's lives than my co-parent. So really what they're talking about is like an emotional experience they want to have, not like a set of circumstances. So when somebody says like, I want to feel loved, what, what do you mean? Like you want a hug or you want a compliment or you want like, I don't know what you mean. I know. So I always like try to drill down, you know, even when I talk to someone about like their career, they'll say, oh, I don't know what I should go to school for. And I'm like, okay, when do you feel alive? When do you feel excited? Like what excites you? What interests you? What's something you do that when you look back up, three hours have passed and you didn't even realize it? Because that is where you need to look. So I think it's, it's what people will say cause them to feel disconnected or unloved. I don't know that it's the answer. I think we can kind of back into it by saying, hey, what is it that, like, when did you feel loved? When did you feel like excited about this person? What were they doing? What were you doing? And then go to the opposite of it. What makes you feel unloved by that person, unvalued by that person, disconnected from that person? What do you think makes your partner feel disconnected and unloved? And again, if, if we can get to know ourselves better and get to know our partner better, I think that's that's the solution. Right. It's It's so true. And I would love to know, like, Obviously, you're in the business of helping people navigate divorce, right? And it's in your, I guess, in your best financial interest to progress that process, right? 
But have you ever been in a situation where someone's come to you and you're like, listen, you just got, you got to go fix your, your marriage. Like, oh, I'm in that position weekly. Uh, you know, the truth is there's sort of a, a misperception about divorce lawyer is probably the most common one that we want to stoke up conflict because it's good for our business model. The truth is, is, is you live and die by your reputation as a divorce lawyer. And so if you're the kind of person that amps up conflict unnecessarily, you will not make it far in this business. It will spread among colleagues, judges, and former clients. You know, my, my advertisement are my former clients Be, because people, people will know if you're amping them up. A lot of the time, your job as a divorce lawyer is to like protect people from themselves, from their emotional state. They're in a heightened, passionate emotional state. And they're going to tell you, I want to do this. I want to do that. And you have to be the one who goes, okay, I, I hear that. I understand why you feel that way. But let's just take a breath and let's think about what that'll be. And that's when the person six months later, a year later, five years later comes back and says, man, I'm so glad you like talked me off that ledge, you know? And I, I, I have to talk people out of doing things that will make me a lot of money a lot of the time. Like a lot of the time I have to sit and go, I know you want me to file a motion and I'll make 10 grand drafted that motion. I don't think you're going to win that motion. So why are we going to do that? And what's it going to accomplish? You know, so that's a piece. Um, but I, I tell you, I, I do spend a lot of, if someone comes into my office for a consultation, I look at it as an educational opportunity. First of all, like I want to talk to them. What are their rights and obligations as a married person? What's a divorce going to look like potentially for them? What are the paths they can take? If I get the impression that this person is not sure if they're ready to get divorced or if they, their spouse has filed an action, but they're not like, in a, we have to defend right away. I'm going to always encourage that person to go to individual counseling and to consider or at least discuss with an individual counselor whether or not there's some way to reconcile the marriage, especially if people have children. You know, if people have children, you want to say from day one, like, hey, listen, you're, you're, you're stuck with this person for the rest of your life, either as a spouse or as a co-parent, but you're going to have grandkids with this person. So you can't just, they're not going to disappear under any circumstances. So either you have to, you know, it's either the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, but you gotta, you gotta have to navigate this person. And if that's not possible, I'll often steer them towards mediation. So like if somebody comes in and says, look, we're, we're both done, the marriage is over, but we don't hate each other. If anything, we're just sad and we just need help kind of figuring out what do we do now? I'll send them to a mediator and I get nothing out of that. Like I, I'm letting money walk out the door, but that's the best way to do things. If you have two reasonable people, both willing to compromise, both honest, um, I'll send them to a mediator. And very often I'll get a call a few months later saying, you know, thank you so much. Like we went to the mediator, we got the whole thing done. We're still able to be friendly with each other and, and be good co-parents. Um, but, you know, because if a mediator does it, they'll do it with a scalpel. If a judge does it, they'll do it with a chainsaw. And so I don't want to ever put someone down that path. Like I'm the person who, if you have me, sometimes you won't have to use me because the other person goes like, okay, if this turns into a courtroom fight, he's real comfortable in a courtroom. So let's not bring it in a courtroom. And that's how cases settle. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when they're getting ready to go and get a divorce or they're filing for some sort of separation that just either end up costing them their mental health, costing them money? Like, What are some of the biggest things people do wrong? 
I think mixing up emotional issues and legal issues is the biggest one. You know, I, I, I think um, the legal system is not a good way to take out your frustration and anger or your sadness at your spouse uh, or soon to be ex-spouse. There's lots of other ways to do that. Um, getting caught up in emotional issues, getting caught up in like battles of principle, um, losing the forest for the trees, you know, holding on to the past to the point where it becomes kind of toxic towards your future, you know? So like, oh, we always went to my mother's for Thanksgiving. So I want to have every Thanksgiving and I want to go to court and fight to make sure I have every Thanksgiving. It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. You always went to your mom's because you guys were married. Like, but now you're going to be divorced people. And you're each going to have time where you wish you had your kids and you're not going to have your kids. And so you have to learn how to do that. You know, now, of course, if your kids are in danger, if there's mental health, substance abuse issues that, you know, your child is in danger, it's different. But if you have like a decent co-parent and they, you know, yeah, they didn't used to spend a lot of time with the kids, but now you're getting divorced and they're going to spend more time with the kid. You know, that's something that, yeah, it's a letting go of sorts because um, your life's not going to look like it looked when you were married and living with your co-parent. But, you know, that doesn't mean that's something to be fought against. Change is not always something to be fought against, you know. There's a difference between uncomfortable and unsafe. And there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable when you get divorced, but they're not unsafe, you know. Um, so I, I think that's a big mistake people make. Um, I think people also, too, get bogged down in minutia. You know, like not everything can be the most important thing. I remember having a client once who said to me, um, he, he, he was one of these people that collected lots of things. So he had like baseball card collection, comic book collection. He had, you know, all kinds of collectibles, like Star Wars collectibles. He had like a whole different, a bunch of different little collections. And they were actually quite valuable, you know. And I remember saying to him, all right, well, this is all acquired during the marriage. So this is all going to be divided and valued in some fashion. And he said, well, look, I, you know, I got to keep the comics, like the comics, like that's my, that's my one thing. Like that's my, and I was like, okay, comics, got it. So we'll trade something else or some other asset. And I said, no, obviously the baseball cards, well, I'm not getting, re the, the baseball cards, that's like my thing. You can't, you know, and I was like, okay, only one thing gets to be the one thing. Like you can't, you know, everything can't be the one thing. So I think people lose sight of the fact that like you can't cut something in half and have it be bigger than it was when you started. At best, it's going to be half the size, but you usually lose something in the cutting. So you got to adjust yourself to that reality. And I also think too, and this is something I think that will strike home to you because I, I know your own perspective on these kinds of things. Having like a physical practice, a body practice, some kind of outlet, you know, whether it's exercise, yoga, um, a mindfulness practice, but something physical is, is really, really important. I think people going through transitions of any kind, whether it's a divorce, whether it's early recovery, whether it's anything, though you need some physical outlet for stress. And, and that can be weight training. It could be martial arts. It could be yoga. It could be running. It could be just walking. It could be anything, but, but not taking care of your body, your diet, um, you know, of course, of course, you know, uh, people are more prone to destructive, you know, habits when they're going through major stress, you know, so people find themselves drinking more, people find themselves abusing benzodiazepines, you know, to, you, know you go to your doctor and you say, oh, I'm, I'm going through this stressful time. And they're like, oh, we'll write your script for Xanax. And now you're taking Xanax every day, you know, and you're not getting quality sleep because you're taking a benzo before you go to sleep. And, you know, 
these are the things that that um, I try as a professional to really say to my clients, like, look, you you need to get all this lined up the right way so that the instrument of your body and your brain can go through this very stressful thing and get to the next chapter. You know, because you're you're getting divorced for a short time and then ideally you're divorced for a really long time. So even if this kind of sucks, you know, I want this to be really good, this post-divorce life. So if your divorce is a little unpleasant and stressful, but your post-divorce life is way better for having gone through the challenge of it, I, I, I'm comfortable with that bargain. So I would say anything that takes people away from, you know, being really honest with themselves and healthy in their approach to their divorce is the thing that, that is a huge mistake. I'd love to dive more into the co-parenting thing because, you know, I've seen that over the years. My parents got divorced and, you know, they were in, in court over custody and child support a lot when I was a kid. And I know that that can sometimes have a have a really negative impact on the kids when these kids are like pawns in, in, in these custody and court battles. If somebody's listening to this and Maybe they're they're interested in your perspective on co-parenting or how to navigate a divorce if it comes up, or they're currently like co-parenting with somebody else right now. Like, what do you, what do you say to them so that it doesn't have such a negative impact on the kids? Yeah, again, a great question, and 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 you know, you have some lived experience with that, which I think really, um, you know, makes like an, I think those are the voices that have to get amplified, or people who've were children of divorce and particularly contentious divorce because you know whoever discovered water it wasn't a fish like when you're in the thing and you're this young person you kind of don't know any different right like you just think this is how parents are and and that has an impact on people you know and there's a lot of great mental health literature out there on you know the unexpected legacy of divorce and the impact it has on children and and the the, the sum and substance of it is that it's not divorce that's bad for kids. It's high conflict between parents and loyalty binds that's bad for kids. Now that happens to correlate with divorce a whole lot, but it doesn't have to. Like it's not like divorce requires that. There are plenty of people, myself included, who are divorced and, and divorced when they had young children and their children were kind of blissfully unaware of any conflict between mom and dad and, and really just were, you know, yeah, like my dad lives here. My mom lives here. They both love me. Like they both are like, they're my parents. They support each other. They back have each other's back. You know, they have full information, you know, like we used to, my ex and I would make a point, especially when the kids were teenagers of like keeping each other in the loop. So that, you know, when the boys came to me, I'd be like, well, your mom told me what happened the other night with you and Brian. And they're like, oh, geez, these two are fine. Like, they know what's going on. Like, they're, you know, I, I can't pull anything over on either of them. And, and I think that was really healthy for their development. It's also why I think they became well-adjusted adults because they, you know, they, they grew up in a household where their mother and their father didn't live together, but loved them and, and were a team and were a family. Um, I think high conflict divorce, and again, you know, there's been a lot of great stuff written on this by people far more qualified than me when it comes to childhood development. But from what I understand of it, it you know, the idea, and we all know this is 
former children ourselves, right? That there's a period of time, you know, that's referred to as idolization, you know, where, where a child wants to believe and needs to believe psychologically that their parents are like superheroes. You know, my dad could lift anything. He's the strongest man alive. He could do anything. He knows everything. And my mom knows everything. She could cook anything perfect. She makes the best everything. She does the best everything. They can all, they can fight the monsters in the closet and the monsters in the closet are afraid of them. The monsters under the bed are afraid of my mom and my dad. And then of course, children eventually and gradually go, okay, my dad's really strong, but like, he's not the strongest. Like he can't lift a car. And like that other guy who I saw who has huge muscles, like he's stronger than my dad, you know, like you start to figure out like, okay, my parents are good at some things and bad at some things. And then as an adult, you start to figure out, oh my God, my parents are just human beings. Like they're just as screwed up as anybody. But, but that's individuation. That's the next stage, right? So we have idealization, we have individuation. Divorce pulls a kid from idealization into individuation, sometimes way too soon. If you're a little, little kid and all of a sudden, Okay, mom is perfect and dad is perfect, but dad's leaving mom or mom's leaving dad and they're not going to be, well, why, that can't be true then. Because if mom and dad are both perfect, why would one of them not want to be with the other one? So it's, it's a real psychological dilemma for kids. And a lot of times in divorce, you know, I don't think people have bad intentions. I don't think anybody ever goes, I really want to screw my kids up, you know, so let's do I think people really have good intentions, but they just don't realize, you know, what their words, what their demeanor, like the impact it's having. We have tremendous persuasive power on our children. And, you know, it's, it's not a matter. I, I always jokingly say, you know, it takes a special kind of psycho to say to a kid, your father is a bad person, but it's pretty common to do the hello. Here it's your dad. Well, you just you just told this person you 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 know you're, you you like you roll your eyes, you hand them the phone. You're 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 saying very clearly your dad's a bad person. You know, kid comes home from a visit with dad, and you say, "Hey, did you have a good time with dad? Oh, what'd you guys do? You went to the park? Oh, that's cool. That's great. Wait, did you guys eat something? Oh, you got pizza? Oh, you love pizza? Okay, good. All right, we'll go upstairs. You know, brush your teeth. It's gonna be time to go to bed soon. Versus. Hey, you're home. I'm so glad you're home. I missed you so much when you were with your dad. What'd you do? Oh, you went to the park? Really? Today? When it's so kind of gross out? Dad took you to the park? Oh my gosh. Did you, what did you have for dinner? Pizza? You had pizza for dinner? Did you have a salad or any vegetables? No, no vegetables? Nothing? Dad didn't give you? You just had pizza? Okay. You know what? If you want, I'll make you something healthy to eat, you know, because I guess dad maybe forgot that it's important to eat vegetables, you know, like, okay. What did you just tell this kid? Like you just told this kid, dad's a bad person. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't know how to feed you the right things, but you didn't. If a judge or somebody asked that kid, does mom ever talk bad about dad? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, but, but clearly mom's talking bad about dad in that situation. She's just doing it in a much more insidious way. And so, and by the way, it's not, you know, male, female thing. There's plenty of men that do that, you know, same kind of game. And sometimes couples, they both do that with each other. And that's how... That's how people really twist up their kids. And they do it with the permission of their own conscience because they, they very often, I don't think even mean to do it. They, they just think they're protecting their kid from this person who they have very negative feelings about because maybe the person's a terrible spouse. 
you know, but you can be a terrible spouse and be a really good parent. That's entirely possible. It's a different skill set. You know, you can be a great employee and a terrible manager or a great manager and not a very good employee. Like people just the, the job description for a parent and the job description for a spouse is not the exact same job description. Yeah, there's some overlap. Being patient is good. Being thoughtful is good. Communicating well is important. Being disciplined, you know, those are all good things for either of those jobs, but it's not the same job. And so when you look at your spouse and you go, this person's not a good spouse, okay, they might be a really good parent. So don't take your spouse out on them as a parent. You know, given the fact that two people are highly emotional, when they're going through a divorce and there's kids involved and then there's like, all right, like I want to make sure that I'm getting my fair share. I want to make sure that I'm getting enough time with my kids. And then we also have heard the quote that it's like, you know, it's better to have kids raised in two separate functional homes versus a dysfunctional home. What should the parents do, I guess, together to strengthen their relationship? What have you seen work? Is it co-parenting classes? Is it therapy? Like what has helped to give them a good opportunity to raise these kids? I certainly think if you're the kind of people that can do some kind of co-parenting counseling together, it's never a bad idea. Um, I think individual counseling is really important. I think if you, you know, the more you know yourself, your own triggers, the mistakes you are prone to making, the things that are going to like, you know, where you screw it up, where your blind spots are, the better. I think that the more you know that, the better you're going to be in a relationship, right? I mean, it's just like any relationship, you know, if you, to know yourself, you're going to be better as a spouse, you know, or a partner. Same thing with co-parenting. It's just another type of relationship. You know, if you know yourself well, and you're honest with yourself about your blind spots and the things that you screw up or the things that, you know, that's a big piece of it. Um, Learning how to communicate, I think, is really important. There's great resources out there, like there's parent coordinators, there's co-parenting therapists that will help people learn how to communicate better. I think sometimes subtly our language is even very loaded, you know, like if you say like, well, my kids or my daughter, it's, well, it's our daughter, you know, like our kids, you know, even languages, I think, can be important. Um, and then I, I really do think that... Um, there's good tech out there now. Like our family wizard is a, is a, an app that a lot of co-parents use either conflict filled ones or even just like routine ones, you know, having a shared Google calendar is huge, you know, like some kind and, and some apps like, you know, our family wizard, or um, there's another one family wise, I think it's called um, where, you know, it's like a shared calendar. You can add things onto it. So you both have like full information. Um, I think that, that there's a lot out there. If you're, if you're open to the fact that this is something you're, it's like parenting itself. Like there's no guidebook. Nobody's born like with a full knowledge base of how to do it. A little humble goes a long way, you know, and, and, and just saying like, Hey, look, this is a new chapter for us. You know, I, I say in my book that one of the things I think people should do when they get divorced and they have children is write what I call a letter of apology and introduction. And, and I, there, it's two separate things, but maybe one letter. I, I, I did it myself when I got divorced. My kids were quite young. They were like five and seven. And I remember I wrote a letter of apology, just saying, look, I, I, I know I hurt you in our marriage. And I know I screwed up as a husband. Like I must have, you know, I know I did. And I'm really sorry for that. Like I never meant to. 
Like I never meant to hurt you ever. I never meant to get it wrong. I, I always wanted to be someone who did a good job for you. And I'm really sorry to the extent that I was not the husband that you needed or that I couldn't give you what you wanted or anything like that. But I really want to be a good ex-husband. And, and that's the introduction part of it is like the look, I, we're changing now. Like there's a new thing now. Like I want to, however I failed you, however, if there's any anger, sadness, any of that stuff, I'll own that and I'll take that. But, but I want to be a good ex-husband. I want to be a good father to our kids. I want to be a good co-parent. And I'm going to screw up from time to time. And I'm going to humbly ask you to help me get better at this and to do a good job. And I think that most people love their children way more than they hate their ex. Like most people, no matter how much they hate their ex, they, they love their children more. Like they love their children so much that, that they, they, you know, most people will say like, oh my God, I, I jump in front of a bullet for my kids. Like, and I, I think they're telling the truth. I think they would jump in front of a bullet for their kids. Like I think people like, holy cow, man, people love their kids, kids and dogs. Like they, they love their kids and their dogs more than they love themselves most of the time. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, but if you love them enough that you jump in front of a bullet, you probably should love them enough that you could be friendly to your co-parent. Like you could be friendly to the person that your children love that much, even if you can't stand them, even if they slept with their secretary, even if they hurt you, even if they, you know, were, were a bad spouse and they disappointed you. And so I, I think that, um, that is, the best thing people can do is to realize that, that, you know, this is a new chapter in your parenting journey and that the sooner you make that shift and make it honestly and openly, the, the better your life is going to be and the better your children's lives are going to be. We talked about that what you believe makes relationships, specifically marriages last, is the ability for couples to remain connected. But I would imagine there's things that you've heard in your office that destroy relationships and marriages. Like this person says this to me. This person talks behind my back. This person's constantly late. What have you found to be like the things you hear over and over and over again that you've heard that have consistently just destroyed marriages and relationships outside of like the blatantly obvious things? I think a big piece is just losing what I called like the cheerleader thing. You know, there's a time when you're first in a relationship where like you really, you're just in this person's corner, you know, like you're, you just, the things they do, you're just a fan, you know, like even the things that, that, that might be a little annoying or something, like they become sort of like charming things about the person, you know, like you, you kind of overlook the bad and you look at, at the, at the, you know, at the bright side of everything with that person. And um, then it's become very in vogue in our culture, I think largely because of media. You know, every TV show, like you got the wife who's rolling her eyes at the stupid husband, you know, and the husband who like secretly can't stand his wife and she's just like this awful woman who doesn't sleep with him anymore. And, you know, all those tropes that make like the married with children or any of those, you know, sitcoms. And then I think people think that's how marriages are supposed to be and how people are supposed to relate to their spouse. But I don't think successful marriages look like that. Like successful marriages, they're cheering for each other. Like they're in each other's corner. There's a loyalty to each other. There is a, like a, I'm not saying, you know, you, you ignore bad things happening or bad choices that your spouse is making. 
I don't think that's healthy for your spouse. If you love someone, you know, it's good to, to help them see their blind spots. But, but it, that can be done in a way that I think is, is loving, right? And affirms that you're a fan of this person. Look, constructive criticism is criticism. Like it, it's got a bow on it. It's constructive. You know, it's not, hey, you suck. It's, you know, hey, what you're doing sucks. But it's still hard to hear. You know, so there's ways I think to to um to 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 you know move forward with change or or suggest change in your partner that that aren't criticisms because I think that's the biggest like subtle divisive thing that that pushes people towards those big as you put it like the big marriage killers the big obvious reasons why marriages end. I also think you know um, romance sex. Um, like intimacy. And when I say intimacy, you know, intimacy doesn't mean sex necessarily, although sex can be, you know, something that facilitates intimacy. Intimacy is the ability to be yourself with another person, to be fully yourself with another person. And so I think that that's something that we, we build and value and cherish early in a relationship. And then later as things move along, we're just sort of like, Meh, I don't need to talk about that right now. Like why upset the apple cart? And I don't think that's good. Like, it's, there's never a good time to have tough conversations or to say something to your partner, you know, that that that's, makes you feel vulnerable to say. But I think that if you don't, the walls that start getting built between people, it's it gets to a place where, like, you can't see over those walls anymore. You can't break through those walls anymore because you've slowly built them brick by brick by brick and reinforced them. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, how come I can't feel this person's warmth anymore? And it's like, dude, because you built this wall over time, one brick at a time. And now it's so damn big. You can't break through it. You can't get around it. You can't feel or hear each other through it. And so I, I really think it's about the little things, like keeping those little connections. Or if you're in a new relationship, like just not letting there be slippage, you know, just really like making up conscious practice of valuing the connection you have. I'd love to know your opinion on love. A, because I think I heard you say that just because you love somebody doesn't necessarily mean the marriage is going to be great or something to that effect or love doesn't necessarily equal. Well, there's a lot of people I love I wouldn't want to be married to. And I think that love and marriage, it's nice when they happen to intersect, but I don't think they have a whole lot to do with each other necessarily. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, they should. I just don't, I think they're correlated. They're definitely not causal. Like I don't think being married to someone makes you love them. And I don't think loving someone makes you marry them. Cause I know people that love each other that aren't married. And I know people that are married that don't love each other in abundance. I know a lot of them. So I think you're making a mistake by, associating those two things with each other too closely. But I think love is, you know, love is everything. Like I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I know it sounds like an oversimplification, but I think, you know, John Lennon was onto something like all you need is love. Like, I think at the end of the day, we're here because of love. Like we're here trying to find love and feel love and give love and, most people, if you ask them about their lives, like what's important, I was a hospice volunteer for many years. And at the end of people's lives, I spent a lot of time in the room with people who were actively dying. And most people, when they're talking to a hospice volunteer, who you only get to meet because you're dying, 
they don't talk that much about the they own. They don't talk that much about the petty grievances they have with people from their life. They talk about their families. They talk about the things they loved doing, the places they loved going, me- the memories of moments they loved, you know, that where they felt alive or where they saw something or ate something beautiful that made them feel alive. Like, you know, love is what we're here for. I, I really believe that. I, I think I'm being a divorce lawyer has not beat the romantic out of me. I, I think love is incredible, but I, I think there's something really, really toxic about not being a realist. Like, I think you can be a romantic and be a realist. I, I think you can be a romantic and, and I think it's actually more romantic to be real and honest and to say, like, no one gives you their love permanently. It is loaned to you. And, and, and I think marriage creates this false perception that your love has now been permanently gifted to another person. And it makes it really easy to just not care for it anymore because, well, it's mine now. No one can take it away. It's mine. But it's not. It's always on loan. Your life is on loan. Your body is on loan. It's, it's ending. Everything is ending all the time. Like your life is ending one minute at a time from the minute you're born. We are born into a grave. Like we are on our way out. And I think we should proceed accordingly. Like I think if you look at your marriage and you remember it's going to end in death or divorce, but it is going to end. I think you, you're going to approach it differently. So I, I really do think that love is what we're after. Marriage is not what we're after. I, if you're after marriage, then maybe, I don't know, it's a financial thing or it's a transactional thing. But even that, why, why are you after it? Because you want security and you want to feel like someone's there for you. Okay. So marriage may not be the solution to that problem. Like you, there's plenty of bad marriages where people don't feel secure. They don't feel like they have support in their life. So I think it's, you know, what is the problem to which marriage is a solution? And if it's the problem of, I don't feel loved, there, there is not a piece of paper that the government can give you that's going to make you feel loved. Or if it does, it's an illusion. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, imaginary solution to a real problem. Staying on this theme, people question often like, I don't know if I am actually in love with this person or I love this person. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if she loves me. I mean, I guess just based on what you just shared and then also your experience, like what are some ways that you think people can know if they actually truly like love somebody and how they can tell if their partner actually loves them? Well, I would say there's two distinct meanings, right? So like love is a feeling and love is a verb, you know? So, so love is a feeling. Like I, I love this person and I feel loved by this person. Like that's a feeling. And then love is also a verb. Like I'm going to love this person. Like I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to the possibility of good in them. I'm going to support them emotionally and, and, and spiritually. Like love is a verb. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do the work to be a good partner to this person. I'm going to, you know, that that's, so I think that you should ask yourself, like one is a feeling like an emotional state and emotional states are like clouds, you know, like they, they pass, they change, you know, and you're not going to a hundred percent of the time be in this like ultra charged state. Like it's, I think that's unrealistic, you know, like those early days of romance, you know, when you, first start seeing someone and like, just they brush up against you and it's like electric, you know, like you, we'd never get anything done if 
if it was like that forever, you know, if, if 10 years in, you were still like, oh, when they even walk past, you're like, that's, dude, that's like, that's an unrealistic, like I would, you'd never go to work, you know, <laughs> you'd never get anything done. So I think it's okay to, to, uh, uh, to be honest with yourself that like, hey, it's going to shift. It's going to change. There's going to be chapters in the relationship where the visceral feeling of love is abundantly clear. Maybe it'll be when a kid is born or an anniversary or when you guys are sharing space in some place that's special to you or when you're having sex or whatever. Like there might be times where you feel that thing intensely and there might be times where it feels further away. But it doesn't mean it's gone. It just means it feels further away. And that's where the verb of love, I think, comes in, which is what can I do that makes this person feel loved? And what does this person do that makes me feel loved? And how can I get them to do that more often? You know, and sometimes I think the answer is when you love someone in the verb sense of the word, they very often then feel inspired to love you back, right? So, you know, I I think that's a huge piece is – there's this spiral that sometimes happens in long-term relationships and it doesn't even have to be a love relationship. It can be an employer and an employee is a great, less emotional example, you know, where, well, I'm not going to pay this person well because they're not really doing their job that diligently. Well, I'm not going to do my job diligently. They're hardly paying me well enough, you know? And it's like, okay, so now we're just in this death spiral, you know, where everyone's unhappy with everybody. Same thing in relationships. Like, you know, this person doesn't value me, so I'm not going to treat them with value. Well, why should I treat them with value? They don't treat me with value. Somebody's got to break that cycle. And and sometimes when – and I'm not saying you should keep, you know, trying to push a, the, the boulder up the hill. If, the, if you're giving and giving and giving and the other person just never gives back, maybe that's a sign that this is not good, right? This is not a good pairing. But a lot of times, like, when we show kindness – the other person starts to show kindness and, and, and all of a sudden this spiral goes in the other direction. And so I think that that's a huge, um, I think the most important question for people to ask themselves is when do I feel loved and when do I feel loving? A lot of this is just in, inside, you know, like I, I, you know, everything's in your head to some degree, you know, everything you're feeling, it's all in your own head. So I think the more you go inside and figure out your emotional state and when you feel loved and when you feel loving, that's where you're really going to do the best work. And that, then I think you, you bring that to the relationship and that's probably what keeps people out of my office is if they can do that. How does somebody know that the person they're in a relationship with, that they feel that they're loved and that they love this person? How do they know that it's actually a good idea to get married? Well, that's a totally different question. So you can feel loved and it's not a good idea to get married. Or you can love this person, it's not a good idea. So getting married is a very specific legal status, right? And so I think there's two answers to your question. One is, why are you getting married? Like, why are you getting the government involved? Um, Is it religious? That you have some religious belief that, you know, in your faith that marriage is necessary? Because there's lots of faiths, you know, that, that, that marriage is a necessary component to sex or to reproduction. There's societal pressure, you know, so why are you getting married? Like, is it a combination? Is it because your mom and dad want you to get married? You know, like, think about why you're getting married. What do you think it's going to have? What impact do you think it's going to have on the relationship? We all know people that they're like, you know, oh, we're getting married. You're like, why are they getting married? Like, they have the most toxic relationship. And if you talk to the person, sometimes their answer is just bad 
Like you'll say to them like, what? well, you know, I feel like if we get married, he'll stop drinking so much. Like what, what in God's name would make you think that's the case? Like, really? Like what, like what, is there any data to support that conclusion? Like, where is that coming from? So, you know, I think asking the question, why am I getting married? Because I think your life should be by design rather than default. And it just shouldn't be, well, this is what you do. Why? Well, I don't know, because this is what you do. Okay. That's not a great answer, you know? So, so I think that's a, a big piece. And then I also think, um, if we're not talking about just marriage from a legal standpoint, if what you're saying is, is this a person I should have like a long-term pair bond with? I think that's about what do I bring out in this person and what do they bring out in me? And it, it, look, I think sometimes it's really easy to mistake uh, deep, passionate, physical connection for a great pair bond. Um, but at the end of the day, like, think about what does it mean to be in a long-term relationship with someone? This person's going to be your roommate. They're going to be your financial partner. They're going to be your vacation partner a lot of the time. Um, they're going to be your sexual partner. I mean, that's the difference between a roommate and a spouse or, or a romantic, you know, cohabitation, right? Is that you're sleeping together or having some romantic sexual component. So I don't think it's bad to say like, hey, you know, this is also about sex because otherwise we'd just be friends who live together, right? So I think asking yourself, how is this person in those categories is a good one. And, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that they have to be perfect in a perfect 10 in all of those. It's got to be the best sex I ever had. Got to be the best roommate ever. We have to have the exact same religious beliefs. We have to have the exact same habits on a daily basis. Both a morning person or both a night person, both dog people or both cat people. I think that's an insane fallacy to think that you to have a good, successful marriage. Cause sometimes polarity is actually why people have great couplings, you know, like one person, you know, like is yin and the other one's yang on certain things. But I think there are some things that are like disconnects, like having a person who's very disciplined with a person who's very spontaneous. Sometimes that can be really helpful because they'll, they'll balance each other out. But you know, a person who's like very much chaotic and the other person is meticulously fastidiously disciplined that might attract them to each other, but man, long-term, they might make each other absolutely insane, you know? And really, like, the things that draw people to each other are sometimes the things that repel them from each other long-term. So I think having an honest conversation about, okay, yeah, I love this person. Yeah, I love sleeping with this person. But are we compatible long-term? Do we both want the same things? Do we envision the same kind of life? Does one of us want a very quiet, sedate life at home and the other one wants to travel the world? Does one of us want kids and the other one's like, oh my God, I definitely do not want kids. Have those discussions. Just because you feel this deep emotional connection with this person, I'm a realist. You know, Again, I'm a romantic, but I'm a realist. Let's talk honestly about what marriage is. It is living with someone most of the time. It is Having this person be your primary relationship most of the time, that we got to call that out for what it is in an honest way. That's, you know, we're, we're bad at it. We are bad at marriage as a culture. 56% of marriages end in divorce. That is a bad statistic. If 10% of marriages ended in divorce, as someone who sees how painful divorce can be and expensive divorce can be and upsetting and frustrating and, and tumultuous it can be, 
if there was a 10% chance of it, it'd still be really dangerous. And I would say proceed with caution. But over 50%? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Like we're just going to charge into this thing and assume that it's the right thing to do? That's crazy. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make before they get married? Um, I think presenting a totally false version of who they are. That's a huge one. Like when you're dating, you know, it's like people just like put spanks on their personality. You know, like they, 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 they like I, I get, you know, there's a difference between um, lying and makeup, right? Like makeup accentuates the best part of you and decentuates the worst parts, right? But it's not straight out lying. Like if you say to someone, oh, I'm six foot two, but you're actually five foot four, it's a lie, you know? But, but, but makeup or a push-up bra, you know, it's not lying. It's just accentuating something, right? It's a little dishonest. But I, I think it's really, really important before marriage to, like, be as honest with each other as possible. Like, to see each other without makeup. To see each other, metaphorical and literal. You know, like, like see each other when you're sick. See each other when you're under stress. Um, like really test this thing a little bit because I think to know a thing, you have to know its limits. And I think when you push it, you see its true nature. I think adversity, you know, brings out the true nature of things. And so I think seeing something through adversity, seeing how it endures adversity, you know, how does it overcome adversity? That's a huge piece. And, and it's, um, you know, it's not something people often want to do before marriage. Like, how do you fight? That's important. Like, talk about how do you fight? If we disagree, what's that going to look like? If you're really mad at me, what's that going to look like? Well, let's talk about that. Like, let's get it out in the open. Let's figure it out. Because, you know, don't just put all that stuff aside. Go, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. No, no, no. You wouldn't say like, you know, I'm trying to pack for this trip. What should I pack? I don't know. We'll figure out when we get there. Well, no, that's the whole point of packing is to like figure out in advance what you're going to need. So I think it's really important to think about that stuff in advance and be very blunt and honest with each other about it. And and again, I get why when we're dating, we want to only show our best face. I understand. Like in the job interview, everybody's an amazing employee, but and every place is a great place to work. But I think it's really like when I interview employees, like I, I, I won't just tell them about working at my firm. I'll leave them in a room alone with some of my employees. And I'll be like, tell this person the truth. Tell them like all the good, the bad, and the ugly about working here. Because it's just too easy to just tell them the good stuff. you know. And I think it's really important to be honest in a long-term relationship from the beginning if possible. Yeah, I've heard that if you can't learn how to fight and navigate conflict, like your relationship, marriage will be destroyed and it won't work out or you'll be in a relationship or marriage that you're just miserable in anyway, because you're just so disconnected from your partner. What have you found to be some helpful strategies for couples, for partners that are navigating conflict that can actually like lead to more connection in the relationship? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think, I think you're actually identifying what the core issue is, which is not just how do we navigate conflict, but how do we prevent conflict, right? You, you, I mean, th some conflict is inevitable, but fighting is not inevitable, right? Conflict is inevitable. So learning how to disappoint your partner tactfully and lovingly is, I think, really important. 
Like most people, you're not going to be able to 100% of the time give them everything they want, right? That's an unrealistic goal. So you're going to have to disappoint them from time to time. So it's probably better to learn how to disappoint someone occasionally in small ways than to disappoint them terribly in a giant way because you were so afraid of a small conflict that you build these very dysfunctional systems that cause a large conflict. So like, it's better, I think, to learn early in a relationship how to tell someone something they don't want to hear and how to hear something from your partner that you wish wasn't true or that you don't want to hear, right? To, to disappoint them and to be disappointed by them and still love them and still feel loved by them. You know, and I think that's uh, that's a huge, huge piece. Creating ways to communicate disappointment or disappointing news that that are less toxic and less likely to lead to like big fights and big conflicts. And I, one of the suggestions I make in my book is called "Hitting Send Now." There's a chapter called "Hit Send Now," where I say you should actually use like. Email. I think email is actually a really good way uh, to communicate tough things to your partner. Um, and, and ideally when they're still kind of small. Because what I like about email is, A, you can be thoughtful in how you phrase things. Like not everybody speaks in like, you know, the, 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 the long Nietzschean paragraphs that like a Sam Harris or a, you know, Lex Friedman can do off the top of their heads. You know, sometimes people have a hard time phrasing something. So when you're writing something, you know, you, you can work on it. You can rework it until you say it the way you want to say it. You can even ask like a friend or a therapist or, you know, someone you trust, like, Hey, what do you think of this? Did I say it the right way? If it's not something that, that you're afraid to share. <clears throat> and then also too, when you send it to your partner, you know, if you say to your partner, I want to talk to you, it feels confrontational, you know, and also they have to sort of immediately respond, or at least there's a pressure to feel like in a conversation, you're going to immediately respond. And that person might not be ready to do that. Or if they do, it might just be their off the cuff reaction that's going to be more defensive than if they had some time to digest it. So that's one of the reasons I like email is that you can be thoughtful in its presentation and that this person can receive it in a, a less um, defensive way. And what I encourage people to do is to actually say to your partner, like have an open discussion of, look, we're going to create calling it hit send now, like hitting send now. Like if you get an email and the subject heading is hitting send now, I'm just saying this to you. I'm sending this out there. I'm not saying you have to do anything. I just want you to know how I feel. And what, and the example that I use is like, we've all been in a situation. If we've ever been in relationships, we've all been in a situation where a partner says something and it like stings in some way. And they don't even realize it. Like they just keep moving. You know, like we were out with friends and they're like, oh yeah, his sister does that all the time. But his sister's like so annoying and da, da, da. And then they just keep going. And you're like, oh, sh really? like, I, wow. Like I thought you liked my sister. That's weird. You know? And like, you're not going to in front of a bunch of people be like, hey, what do you mean about my sister? Like, but, but it hurt. Like it stung a little bit. You know, where they like cut off something you say, well, oh, he, I mean, he's always saying that, but that's crazy. You know, like and it just stung. It's not you slap me in the face, but it's like, oh, that, that, that hurt a little bit. And so that's something that you can just leave it, leave that little burning hot coal and push it way down, you know, and then just sort of like, well, you know, and that's how, you know, you end up in a relationship where like 
you're having a discussion about, you know, like what's the best traffic route to take to get to the place you're going. And 10 minutes later, you're like, you know, I never liked your mother. And it's a wait, what the, like, where did that come from? And the answer is like, they just push and push down until the whole thing blows up. So I, I genuinely believe that, that having a technique where you could send, you know, hit send now and say, look, the other night when we were out with friends and kind of made a comment about my sister and maybe I took it too hard, but it just felt weird. Like I always thought you liked my sister and it, it felt like you kind of were disrespecting her and I didn't really know. And if there's some issue with you and my sister, like I'd like to know what it is because I kind of thought you guys got along. And even if you have an issue with her, like it felt weird that in front of people that you said that, you know, and I didn't know if I should defend her. Like it just felt weird. And that gives this person a chance to like write back and be like, oh my God, I'm so, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Like I just was just running my mouth, you know, or I didn't mean to phrase it that way. Or maybe to say like, yeah, listen, you know, I, your sister's never been kind of nice to me. And maybe I'm like carrying that around. And it gives like an invitation for people to have, you know, a, a dialogue. So I, I think if you can learn how to openly share those small things, and I know, like, listen, there's a whole audience of people. I've heard this criticism before when, when people, when the book came out, you know, one of the most common things people were like, you're telling me I should send emails every time my partner says something that upsets me. Like, are you kidding me? Like, and then, and you then say, don't criticize your partner. I, I, I don't see it as an opportunity to criticize. I see it as an opportunity. You're saying to this person, I care enough about you and about us that I, I just want you to know me. I want you to know what I'm feeling and thinking so that we're not pushing things down because this is important to me. And I have to tell you, like, as someone who's been in relationships, when you frame it in your own head that someone is saying something to you because they care about you and because this is important to them, you hear it differently. You know, you hear like there's a difference between someone yelling at you because they want to yell at you and yelling at you because the car is coming to hit you and they want you to get out of the way. You know, like one is to hurt your feelings. The other is to prevent you from being hurt. I think the more you hear your spouse telling you something you did or said that upset them as, hey, you're important to me, the, the better off you are. You touched on like the importance of preventing conflict in a relationship in a marriage and like some of the things you can do for that connection is ultimately the thing that makes or breaks a relationship or a marriage. And the reality is that the people are, are busy and, you know, after the initial high of an, a relationship wears off or when things get, you know, super busy with kids and everything, sometimes the connection piece goes out the window because they're just so busy and overwhelmed with other things that are frankly important. What advice do you have for, for couples to maintain like little things they can do on a daily basis or weekly basis to maintain connection, even when things are super busy. Yeah. So I would, I would call people out on that as bullshit. I, I, I think that um, that's like when people go, I'm too busy to exercise. Really? Like, really? You're, if I told you there's a pill you could take, it's going to make you sleep better, have sex better. It's going to improve your mood. It's going to make you more effective. It's going to make your body look better. It's going to make everything work better. Would you take that pill? And they'd say, well, yeah, of course. Okay, it's called exercise. It takes 20 minutes a day to swallow it. And you're too busy. It's like the old joke about, you know, 
A monk says to a man, I think you need to meditate a half an hour a day. And the guy says, I don't have a half an hour a day to meditate. And he says, okay, then I think you need to meditate an hour a day. Like, I think if you say, I don't have time to connect with my partner, then you really need to make time to connect with your partner. Like, that's huge. That's huge because it doesn't take much. I think most of us, if we're being honest, right, really honest, would you rather have five hours with your romantic partner where they're kind of half paying attention, but they're mostly on their phone and they're, you know, like kind of leaving the room or like an hour where you are the whole world. Like they are paying attention to you. They are paying attention to the connection. Like most people would say, Hey, I want their own. Like I would like a really amazing, do you want a whole bunch of really crappy food at the buffet or do you want a really nice, satisfying, smaller meal, but it's delicious? I, it's a no-brainer for most people, you know? And by the way, you know which of those two is better for you. You know, it's way better to have. So I think that the 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 um, time thing, you, you make time for your relationship. When you're first dating someone, you certainly make time for them. You can't wait. You can't wait. It's not like, oh, I have time to kill. You make time. Like, you're like, oh my God, I want to talk to this person. Like, your phone goes off. What's going on there? And so, make time. That's piece one. Piece two, I think it's little things. I really do. I think little things, man. I mean, little things make us feel loved. You know, little things make us feel loved, whether it's the cup of coffee the person makes or the food that they know you like that they bought for you or the little... You know, I always tell men that I'm friends with <clears throat> as a life hack who are in relationships, particularly relationships with women, I'll tell them, leave notes. Just leave a note. When you go to work in the morning, if you leave your wife a note, your girlfriend a note that just says, you know, hey, babe, you know, so nice hanging out with you last night, watching that thing on Netflix. I I'm in love with the prettiest girl in the world. You know, have a great day. Like, dude. There's not a woman alive who's not going to be like, if you do that, I mean, for, I, I actually had a friend, a guy at the gym who I see every day where I was at the gym around the same time. And he read my book and we were talking about the idea of leaving notes. And a couple of weeks later, he came to me and he goes, listen, I want to thank you. He goes, I did the note thing. And it's like literally like unbelievably changed the relationship. Like, like he goes, but the first couple of days, she was like, what is going on? Are you cheating on me? Are you dying? Like, what are you doing? And I said to her, I'm like, oh, I just want to make a more of a, like, I want to try to remind myself of how important you are to me. And he said, after like two weeks of it, he's like, it's, we've never had better sex. We've never had like, she's never been nicer to me. Like, it's incredible. Like he was like, it's a transformative thing. And I said, yeah, and what does it take? And he's like, it takes like literally 30 seconds a day. Like it takes nothing. He's like, and I just write like a little something. Like I just write a little funny thing, you know, oh, I heard that song. Remember that song we used to listen to? Or I like write like a silly little haiku or it doesn't even have to be that creative. It can just be some, I can't, you know, I'm leaving for work, but I can't wait to see you at the finish line. Like just little something like that. Because what are you really doing? You're telling this person, I love you. I value you. I mean, when is the last time that you looked at your partner? Like when you're first dating someone, you're constantly telling them how beautiful they are, how handsome they are, how smart they are, how wonderful they are. Like, really, what, what would it hurt to just say a kind word to your party? Just be like, God, you're so pretty. Like when they're standing there in the mirror doing their thing. If you're standing there in the mirror shaving or whatever, you know, and your girl walks by and she goes, God, you are so hot. 
Like you, there's no way you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, like really? Like, okay, that's cool. Thanks. You know, like it's the greatest feeling in the world. So why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you? It costs nothing to do that. You know, so I, I think these little tiny things are just so easy that we just don't do them because we're like, well, they know this person knows. Obviously, I love you. Like, I'm living with you. Of course, I love you. Like, what do you mean? I love you. Yeah, of course, I think you're pretty. I'm with you. I, there's a lot of pretty women and I'm not with them so I could be with you. So obviously, I think you're pretty. OK, but it's nice to be told you're pretty. And by the way, the, the guy at her job who tells her she's pretty. Like if he, if the guy at her job has told her she's pretty more often than you and you live with her, that's not great. That's not great. Like that's not a good thing. If the guy in her Instagram messages tells her how pretty, how great her hair looks and you haven't ever mentioned it and vice versa. I'm not, man, believe me, women too. Same thing, man. Like if a woman doesn't say to you like, Hey, you know, I'm so like, thank you for just, I always feel so safe when I'm with you or like, Hey, thanks for you know, like, I, like, I'm so good. I'm just such a good provider for me. Like, it just means the world to me. Like I look at my friends who are struggling and I see how lucky I am to have a man who takes such good care of our family, whatever, whatever it is. Like, I don't know the dynamic of a couple, you know, there's some couples where they both pull the weight. There's some couples where one person does one thing, the other person does something else, but, but why not compliment that and be mindful of it and remind your partner that you're cheering for them and that you love them and value them. And, and that will inspire them, I hope, to do the same to you. And there is not one of us that doesn't enjoy that. Because I call bull on the like red pill manosphere guys that are like, we don't need women. Okay, why are you on a video telling me you don't need women then? If you don't need women, just go about not needing women. That's cool. Like you, you obviously do because you're, you're, you're getting up talking about why they're what you're trying to say, I think, is that the, the, these women are failing you. You feel like they're failing your expectation. That's a conversation worth having. You know, are they not fulfilling a reasonable expectation that you should have of them? And how do we fix it? Or are your expectations unreasonable? I, again, that's a conversation worth having. But just saying like, well, I don't care. It's like the, the, the people when we were like, you know, in college or, you know, they were like, well, I made like musicians were like, I make my music for me. Okay. Then why aren't you just like in your room playing it? Why are you trying to get on a stage to play it? If you're making your music just for you, great. You don't have to share it with anybody. If I wrote a book just for me, I wouldn't publish it. You know, I'm publishing it because I want people to like it. I want people to learn something from it. I want people to get something from it. I want the ego gratification of, of having people enjoy my work. These are the reasons why we do these things. So be honest about it. Be real about it. Like you don't have to get married. You don't have to live with someone. You don't have to be in a committed relationship. You don't. You don't. It's great. If you don't want that, if that's not for you, you don't have to do it. So if you're going to do it, then you've got to make certain habits, compromises, and choices. But the great news, you don't have to. If, if it doesn't suit you, if you're one of these people that goes, well, I'm not doing that, cool, then don't get married. Or don't expect your marriage to work because it won't. You know, that, and that's okay. Just, but again, if, you, if you're like, I don't want to do the things that are necessary to be married, but I also want to get married, okay, I don't have to tell you them because that's not a great, that's like saying, I don't want to have a job, but I definitely want to go to work. What, I don't, what does that mean? That, that doesn't make any sense. When you're in conversation with a client that's going through a divorce and there was infidelity involved, 
and you ask the question, why did you cheat? What's the most common answer? Wow. Anyone's ever asked me that. It's a good question. So I tend to not ask people why they cheat. So I, I want to say that from the beginning because I don't really know that – A, I don't know that it's any of my business. B, I don't know that it's relevant to their divorce. And C, I don't think they would be able to give me an honest answer. But I'll answer a different question, which is why do I think people cheat? <laughs> and I think the answer is is as simple as, as frustrating – uh, and that is that they're they're not fulfilled sexually. I mean, I think that's why people. It's like, why do people eat? Because they're hungry. Um, the question is, why aren't people satisfied sexually? That's a bigger question. And I think there are some people that want variety, and they're not comfortable with admitting that. Um, and they're not cut out for monogamy for whatever reason that they, they the sexual variety is too important to them. And then I think those people maybe need to think about the connection between love and sex um, because I, I, I don't think monogamy has to, like love doesn't have to be monogamous and monogamy doesn't mean that you're sexually satisfied and being, by the way, being not fully satisfied sexually also may not be the worst thing in the world. I don't know that I'm qualified to say if it is or isn't. I will say that it, it generally doesn't end well for people when they're unhappy uh, from a, a sexual satisfaction standpoint. But I, I think um, people are not honest with each other about sex. I mean, that's, again, realism. Like, I just don't think people are honest with each other about sex. They, they <clears throat> may not be honest with themselves about what they want. And they're certainly not comfortable being honest with their partner about what they want. Again, because... They don't, there's never a good time to say something your partner doesn't want to hear. And so saying to your partner, hey, look, I'm not enjoying the sex as much as I used to, or we're not having as much sex as we used to. There's lots of good, lovely, loving reasons why you wouldn't share that with your partner. You know, like you're, you're, you know that they're dealing with something and that's why you guys aren't having much sex is that, you know, so you don't want them to feel badly or you think, well, why should I? I'm not a baby. Like I can do without, you know, it's okay. It's not the end of the world, but I, I think sex is important. And I think people have to be honest with themselves about what their sexual needs are. And they have to be able to be honest with their partner about what their sexual needs are. And I think that's, those are both really hard things. It's harder probably to be honest with another person than it is to be with yourself. But a first step is to be honest with yourself about your sexual needs. And I think that's a hard thing to do. Uh, and then I think sharing it with your partner is a hard thing to do too. But again, you know, I, one of the reasons I, I appreciate your work, um, Doug, is that I, I, as a parent, you know, I, I talk a lot um, it, it, for a living, but I don't really claim to have any unique wisdom necessarily to import on the world. Um, but when I was raising my sons, I, I said to them both, and I stand by it, that the most valuable lesson I have to offer them, the most valuable axiom, the most valuable piece of advice I can give them is the hard thing to do and the right thing to do are almost always the same thing. I, I genuinely believe that in life, that the hard thing to do and the right thing to do are almost always the same thing. Like, like the harder path is almost always the right one. Like it is hard to sit there rather than playing with your phone, but it's, it's better. You know, it's hard 
to be uncomfortable in a group setting instead of having a drink to like drop your, you know, your inhibitions to be like, but it's better. It's better to learn how to be uninhibited in a natural way. It's hard to, to find time to get good sleep, but it's better. Like the hard thing and the right thing, you know, Jocko Willenick, uh, you know, always, you know, one of, one of the best gems I think he ever said is that discipline is trading what you want now for what you want most. And I really love that. I think that is such a, a, a gospel piece of wisdom that, that because what we want most is love and connection. And what we want now is stuff and things and attention and co- right. But what we want most, like think about what we want most. And, and if we keep our eye on that and we do the hard things that, that, that we need to do to, to keep our eye on that ball of what we want most, I, I think that's a better path. So would you say, though, the reasons that you think that people cheat, would you say the opposite is also true, that if you're really focused on not just having healthy communication with your partner around sex, that you're also like showing them love and doing the small things and complimenting them? Because you made the example like, like hey, if your wife's coworker is complimenting her more than you are, like that's a problem. If a guy's like coworker or somebody from back in the day is like complimenting him more than his wife, like that's a problem. So would you say that that is also true? Yeah. I not only think it's true, but I actually think that again, it's a cycle. Not only are they now getting that reward from someone other than their primary part, but they're also going to then come home with a resentment. There's no way around that, that they come home and they're like, like, why I come home? Like the people at work are nicer to me than this person, you know, because the the silence is deafening then, you know, because if you have someone else telling you you're pretty or you're smart or you're competent or you're great or you're awesome, or they wish they had someone like you and you have someone who has you, who has you, you know how many guys do that? Well, if I was your man, I would never let that. Your guy did what? Well, if I was your man, I would never do. Okay. Or the, the women that are like, oh my God, God, you're so, your wife is so lucky or your girlfriend's so lucky. I mean, does she realize how awesome you are? God, men suck and you're so great. And then you go home and your partner's just like, yeah, you're, you know, it's just you, you're you, you know, like you're not, you know, that, that is a spiral. Because then you're starting to be like resentful and short with this person. And then what happens? They don't feel closer to you. They're not going to be more likely to compliment you. It's a death spiral. You know, it's, it's, like the, it's like the person that says on Monday or on Sunday night, all right, I start my diet tomorrow. I start my diet tomorrow. It's Monday and I start my diet tomorrow. And they get up and they have a good breakfast and they do okay for lunch. And then they get home and they're like, oh, my God, I want some real food. And then they eat a bunch of food and they go, well, you know what? Now it's Tuesday. I mean, I'll, you know. I'm not going to start on Tuesday. It's Taco Tuesday. I'm going to do Tuesday. All right. So I'll start my diet Wednesday then, you know, and then they're like, well, it's already Wednesday and I didn't do it. I'll start it on this weekend. Oh, well, I can't this weekend. I'm going to that barbecue. So, you know, okay, maybe Monday, next Monday, I'll start again. It's, you know, there's never going to be a good time, right? So you got to start somewhere. Like it's like early sobriety, you know, it's like, well, I can't quit drinking now. It's the March madness. Well, I can't quit drinking now. It's St. Patrick's days in two weeks. Well, I can't quit drinking now. Okay. There will always be a reason why you shouldn't do it right now. So just do it right now. Like go home that day and start treating your spouse or partner a little different and be patient. You know, do it without total expectation. Do it with a certain level of patience. Do it because it's true. 
I hope. I hope you're with your partner. Because if you're, by the way, if there's nothing redeeming about your partner, that, that you don't, don't feel any connection to them, you don't love them, they're not funny, they're not pretty, they're not, leave. Like, figure it out. Get out. Go. And I'm not just saying that for job security. Go. There's 8 billion people in the world. 8 billion. Roughly 4 billion of each sex. There's a few more women than men. So why? Why? Why are you? You're only here for a certain amount of time. You're going to die. So don't be with someone who you just, there's nothing about them that you could connect to or come home and be positive about or cheerlead for. If they have no redeeming qualities, you've chosen poorly. And great news, there's like 4 billion alternate selections available to you. Or if you're bisexual, almost 8 billion. So you got a huge menu you can choose from. So I, I genuinely think that, you know, be the person who they see their coworker as or the other people in the world. I mean, this is more than ever before, especially with social media. Like, you know how many people are sliding into everybody's DMs back and forth and everybody's just like in touch with everybody. And of course, like it's the outside view. So, you know, you're only seeing the best stuff of a person. So it's really easy to compliment them. If I... I would tell you something. If, 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 if I was a quarter of the man that the women in my DMs who watch, you know, me do a video about relationships or they watch me do a podcast and they're like, Oh, he's so this. If I was a quarter of the man that those women think I am, I would be like the greatest man in the whole wide world. It's an idealized vision of someone. And, and that's, you know, that's lovely, but you don't actually know this person. I'm not saying we don't all have redeeming qualities. We do. And hopefully the people in our lives, the love in our lives, like they see the best in us and they're connected to the best in us. So all I'm suggesting people do is that they, they shine a light on that. I want to talk about soulmates because I've, I've heard you say something to the effect that the term soulmate, you know, has, has made you very successful and other lawyers successful in their career field. Um, why do you believe that? Well, it's kind of what I said earlier that I that I I think that a person you marry or you're in a long-term relationship with, they, they're supposed to check a bunch of boxes. There's a bunch of boxes to be checked. But the concept of a soulmate, as I understand it, and as I think a lot of people interpret it, is that a person should be a 10 out of 10 in every one of those categories. And if they're not, well, you, you screwed up. Because the same thing I just said, hey, there's 8 billion people in the world. Like there's got to be one out there that checks all the boxes in all the categories perfectly. And look, I, maybe that's true. I don't know. But like, I just think that's a very, if that's the standard, if the standard is that this person's got to be a 10 out of 10 in all the categories, that feels to me like, wow, like that, that is a real, that's a heavy lift. You know, and I don't think I expect that in any relationship in life. Like, so I don't know why you'd expect it in your romantic relationship that like, you know, like you, there's, there's almost no person, animal, anything in your life that you go, I wouldn't, nothing about that is anything but perfect. Like that's, and by the way, if you're saying everything about that is completely perfect, I think you need to take a close look at whether you're being honest. Because like that's that's like rose colored glasses of to the to the ninety ninth degree. If you're looking at a person saying they have absolutely no flaws of any kind, they are absolutely perfect in every way. I'm not saying, by the way, I think there is something to be said for you're perfect just the way you are, which is flawed. 
Like I, that's, that's different. Like, I think we're all perfect. Like, I think we're, we're all perfect. We are all the way we're supposed to be and we're all works in progress and we all have wonderful things and terrible things about us. And, and, you know, I, I, I believe that I believe we are imperfect and perfect in our imperfection. Um, but that's not what most people mean when they do the, like, this person's perfect. Like they're not perfect. They're not perfect. And, and you don't want them to be like, I don't want anyone to think I'm perfect. If somebody said like, you are perfect. Okay. You need to get your head examined because I, I am not perfect. I might be perfect for you. That's lovely. If what you're saying is I just find in the totality of you that it adds up to wonderful. Okay. I'll take that. That's great. That's a great recipe for a nice connection with someone. But, you know, per- perfect is the opposite of good. You know, it's the enemy of good. And, and, and I forget which uh, book it was, maybe the Brothers Karmasov, where he says, you know, that, that now that we are not perfect, we could be good. And that's a, that's a nice thing to be, to, to give yourself permission to not be perfect individually or even in relationship, but to, to be able to be good, to do your best at it. Are you ever out at like dinner or at events and you're just thinking to yourself like, man, this, this relationship's not going to last. This marriage is certainly going to fail. Do you have like your antennas on with that stuff? I do. I don't mean to, but I do. Yeah, I do. I actually correctly predicted every one of the divorces in the first season of the Real Housewives of Orange County. I, I watched the first season when it was on, like the before the Housewives craze. Yeah, I watched it and I remember saying to, I think it was to my ex-wife, I remember watching it and going, oh, they're definitely, oh, they're definitely going to get divorced. Yeah, they're definitely going to get divorced. I was right about every single one of them. Um, I mean, partly because they all got divorced, but um, I, yeah, I mean, I can see, I see cracks where maybe other people don't see cracks. Um, I mean, it's not hard when something fails 56% of the time. You can kind of throw darts in the dark and, you know, at, at a list of names and you, you're going to more likely than not hit one. Um, but yeah, I think I've got a pretty good radar for it. You know, I think I wouldn't be able to do my job well if I wasn't someone who's something of an empath and that's sensitive. I, I, I think I, I'm good at reading people's emotional state and, um, that's a blessing and a curse because I think, uh, it, it would be nice to not be able to read that so well. I, I have to read people for a living, you know, and I have to, attached to their emotional state as best I can so I can get into their head and be able to tell their story. And I have to be able to get into their spouse's head to figure out what the counter story is to my story. And then I have to figure out how to weaponize each of those things. And I figure out how to get into the judge's head and persuade them. You know, so I, I have to put myself in a lot of people's heads a lot of the time. And so that's hard to trans why you when you said like, if you're ever at a party or out to dinner, I'm rarely at either of those things. Like I, I, I don't go out to dinner and I don't go to parties. Like I don't, I always tell like when friends say like, Oh, we're getting married. I'm like, cool. If you invite me, I may or may not show up. If you don't invite me, I'll give you a much larger present. Like I just, I'll send you a check. Like I just, I, I, I have a very interactive job. And when I finish doing it for the day, I'm, I'm done. Like I'm, I, I'm happy to just unplug. And on the weekends, when I'm not working, I, I work most weekends. When I'm not working, I, you know, I have a place in the middle of the woods on 30 acres, and I'm I'm just there unplugged, you know, because I, I prefer that. And then and then back to it, you know, the intense interpersonal stuff the rest of the time. What were some of the things that you saw in these relationships on the Real Housewives show that you mentioned that 
like that stuck out to you that you were like, all right, this is happening. They're treating them like this. Like what were some of the things you saw? Uh, some of it, they're op- different opposites. So if a person is just really, really critical of their partner, that's always a red flag. Or if a person is wildly, overly effusive about the perfection of their partner, that's another red flag. Because it's not, it's like, it means they're delusional, essentially, or they're trying to like, you know, if someone's telling me how happy they are all the time, after a little while, I'm like, okay, like, if you were that happy, you just go be happy. Like, you don't. Like, you don't have to keep telling everybody how happy you are, you know? Um, I, I think the more that people have, the more people feel they have to advertise how happy they are, the, the, the more I question whether they're happy or not. Because genuinely happy people are off just being happy. They don't, they're not, like, looking to advertise it to the whole wide world and be very performative about it. So anytime I see the, like, couple that's on social media with, like, hashtag blessed all the time, uh, hashtag greatest husband ever. Hashtag, you know, like it, I'm like, okay, you're, you're, I don't know who that's for. Like, are you trying to convince yourself? Are you trying to convince the rest of us? Like, what are you, what are you trying to, you know, don't look over here. Um, on the housewives too, I, I also feel like on those particular franchises, you have a lot of really materialistic people. You know, I, I represent a lot of ultra wealthy people now. I represent a lot of high net worth people. And I can tell you that there is definitely a correlation between, you know, extreme wealth and extreme unhappiness, um, particularly relational unhappiness, relationship-based unhappiness. Um, I, I think that money offers real solutions to imaginary problems and imaginary solutions to real problems. And so I, I think um, a lot of times, especially too, a lot of the real housewives are like nouveau riche, you know, like they didn't come from money, they were broke, and then they, you know, were entrepreneurial or they married into money. And, um, that's, that's something that I think people really struggle with when it happens to them. Cause I think when you grow up without money, money becomes a symbol of everything you didn't have. Like if I had just had money, I'd feel safe. If I just had money, I'd feel secure. If I just had money, I'd be loved. If I just had money, I wouldn't feel ashamed of anything. I would just feel great all the time. And then you get money and you go, Oh, it's just money. Like it makes some things easier. You get some nice things, but they're just things like they're not, you know, you get like an amazing car, you know, it's really cool for a couple of weeks and then it's just your car. You know, you get an amazing watch. It's like, oh, look at my watch for a little while. And then it's just a watch. Like, you're used to it, you know? And so I, I think when you watch those shows where people are performatively showing you how wealthy they are and how happy they are, and it's like an arms race of conspicuous consumption and materialism, and how happy they are, and how successful they are. I think that's a recipe for disaster in relationships. And, um, and, and I think time has proven that. I mean, the, I don't know what the divorce rate among Real Housewives is on Bravo shows, but it's got to be in like the 80, 90%. I mean, they're, you know, they, they, that is like a almost guaranteed divorce rate there if you're on a long enough timeline. So, so if you're saying that you've seen like, you know, there's a strong correlation between people who have a lot of money and their level of unhappiness. Yet, I imagine, like we've talked about, the connection is like the main thing that drives the success of a relationship and marriage. But I think somewhere up there as well is is money impacts marriage and relationships. So where do you draw the line between money being important for a couple to remain stable, but like also not letting it make you severely unhappy? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think anything in a relationship, I would actually take that question on a bigger tack and say that anything becoming too much is bad, right? Like anything, so sex is important, but if sex is everything, you're going to have a problem. Money is important, but if you make money the centerpiece of your relationship, it's going to be a problem. Um, I, I think everything has to be given appropriate attention and priority. Nothing is insignificant, but nothing should be everything, right? Like people have a tendency with money to either overestimate the value of it and what it's going to be able to give them or grossly underestimate its importance and leverage themselves in ways that cause tremendous stress in their relationships. So I, I think healthy balance, you know, healthy balance is everything. We suck as a culture at moderation in anything. Like we, we, we are a culture that treats dandruff with decapitation. Like we are not a culture that's good at moderation. We don't want to hear it with moderation. Like we don't want to hear it. You know, it's like, we want to, we want to do CrossFit. We don't want to get told, yeah, like 20, 30 minutes of exercise, you know, some cardio and some resistance training. Like we don't want to get told, you know, we want to be told like, just do this cabbage diet and inject this drug into your abdomen and you're going to be healthy. We don't want to be told like, yeah, you know, just like eat moderate, mostly plants, you know, lean proteins. You're good. You know, like we don't like the, 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 the honest answer, like, you know, crypto, invest in this crypto. That's going to be OK. You don't want to be yeah, tax free, you know, municipal bonds that are, you know, triple tax free. They're kind of boring. They're going to steadily return like three, four percent, which tax impacted is like closer to nine percent. People don't want to hear that. You know, you don't want to hear like you want to know what's the secret to saving your marriage? What what weird hack is there? You don't want to hear like, yeah, like just be like a little bit nicer to your partner, you know, be kinder, you know, try to notice them, try to compliment them occasionally, treat them with the love that you would like to be treated with. Like, this is not a sexy answer. So people are not as interested in it, you know, like money is important. Of course, of course, it's important. Anyone who says otherwise is being ignorant. Like money represents certain security. It prevents certain kinds of stress. It creates certain opportunities that facilitate happiness or create opportunities for happiness. But money can't buy happiness. Anybody who says that's just, you know, it's just garbage. Like, listen, it'll, it'll distract you for a while, you know, but at the end of the day, it can't solve some of the biggest problems. Like you get cancer, you can buy good medical care, but you can't buy your way out of cancer. You know, you can't buy a cure, you know, you can, you can, you can buy, you know, comfortable position. You can buy a really nice toilet. You still have to use the toilet like every other human being, like you're, you're, you're human, you know? And so you have to, I think, be honest with yourself about what you're, what, what you can really control for and what you can't. And I think that money is one of those areas where people just put stuff on it emotionally that's so dishonest and toxic. Last question I have for you is obviously we've talked a ton about relationships, love, marriage. You've talked about the divorce rates being so high. We've talked about that, you know, just because there's love doesn't necessarily mean that, that equals marriage. We've talked about all sorts of things. Somebody might be listening to this and like, I don't know what to do. Like, should I, should I set a, should I, should I have this goal to get married? Should I not like who should and who shouldn't get married? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. And I, I think just asking that question is really healthy. Should I get married? I think if people actually ask that question, instead of assuming they should get married, we'd be in a better position. 
system we're in right now. I think people don't even ask that question. It is assumed that you should get married. It is assumed you should have children. And I understand that some of that is religious. Some of that is cultural. But I think it would be worthwhile to ask the question, should I get married? Should I have children? We ask the question, what profession should I choose? Should I live on the East Coast or West Coast? Should I live in the United States or elsewhere? What should I have for breakfast? We don't ask the question, should I get married? Should my goal be to get married? Or should my goal be to be in love or to find love? By the way, it might not be. Like it's one size does not fit all in this universe. Like I, I genuinely believe that marriage is a specific kind of relationship and it's clearly not for everybody. So why aren't we being honest with ourselves and each other if we are in fact marriage material? We spend a lot of time asking if our potential mates are marriage material and not asking, am I marriage material? Am I someone who should be getting married or am I someone who maybe that's not where, where I am right now in my life? That's not the path for me. Maybe it will be in the future, but it's not right now. So I think just asking that question is valuable and your willingness to ask that question may help you find the answer to it. But I think it's a very personal answer. And I think you should ask yourself the question, what is the problem to which marriage is a solution? And that's going to be a very different answer for everybody. But I think you should ask yourself that question. It's valuable to ask questions. Look, one of the things I always say about, about religion, about education, is it's great. Religion and, and, and education are both great at teaching people to ask interesting questions. Where they start to really leave a trail of blood is when they claim to have the answers. You know, I, I think we need to create a society where people ask interesting questions and then we can debate about and talk about the answers, the possible answers. But I think asking good questions is, is where you start. So I, I really hope that um, if people walk out of listening to this conversation with something, I hope that they start asking themselves questions about their marriage, whether they should be married or not. If they're married, what does my marriage mean to me? What am I willing to give for it? And what do I want to get from it? Um, those, are, those are good questions to ask. And I think if you ask yourself those questions, you'll live your way into the answer. James, this conversation has been phenomenal. I wanted to thank you so much for your time. The audience is going to get a ton of value out of this. And I just wanted to thank you once again. Thanks for having me, Doug. I, I love uh, the stuff you share. And I think your, your message that you're putting out in the world is an important one. And uh, I, I really appreciated the invite. And I was excited to come on. So thanks for having me. You got it, man. This conversation was incredible. And thanks again, man. Thanks.